I'm excited to continue what uh, Haley brought us to last week. She, uh, our starting point that she brought us to was um, that if you've spent time in America or in the Western world at all, the Bible is everywhere in your life. And here we are at a church and we're talking about the Bible. That's not surprising, right? Um, yeah, for better or for worse, the Bible is in uh, everything if you've spent any time in America or the Western world at all. Whether we're consciously aware of that at the moment or not, um, I remember seeing something that has always struck me. It was a list of phrases in popular culture that come from the Bible. Has anyone ever seen a, a list of phrases like this? It's really, like there's tons and some of them are really like, oh my gosh, that's from the Bible, what? So like there's obvious ones. Um, Forbidden fruit, right? Or good Samaritan, right? Like we, those are part of our regular conversation and in popular culture, and we know that those come from the Bible. But there's less obvious ones. So the writing is on the wall. Did you know that's from the Bible? It's from the book of Daniel, actually. So yeah, if something is like, oh, it's bound to happen, you might say the writing is on the wall. Um, to put words in someone's mouth. Did you know that phrase originates with the Bible? Yep, that originates from, um, um, I think, First Samuel. Um, but it says, like, Joab, put words in her mouth. And so that, that's, the, that's the phrase. Uh, Go the extra mile. That comes from the Bible. Yeah, it's from the Gospels. Um, eat, drink, and be merry. Have we heard that before? Everyone, eat, drink, and be merry. Have fun. That's from the Bible. Um, never would have thought that one, right? Uh, <laughs> another one bites the dust. No, no, no. Another one. But that's from the Psalms. Did you guys know that? That, that phrase, it's, it's lick the dust in the Psalms, but eh, you know. Anyway, uh, so <laughs> Haley shared last week uh, about her experience growing up immersed in the Bible. I did not grow up reading the Bible, but even in my not Bible immersed childhood, I had heard so many of those, right? Or used so many of those because they're just, they're, they're everywhere. It's impossible to not be shaped by the Bible if you grow up in America. And of course, beyond the things in culture that I didn't realize were a part of the Bible, like it's not like I didn't know it existed, even though I did grow up reading it or being told that I should read it. Um, I, of course, it, it, was, it was all around and I, I had had opinions formed for me about it. It's, it is impossible, what I've just said, to grow up not aware of the Bible in our culture. And therefore, it's impossible to not have some interpretations or opinions about it handed to you that you grow up with or you, you know, end up developing yourself. One step further, it's impossible for you to not pass on your interpretations and the Bible about the Bible to those around you, no matter how much you engage it personally. It could be none at all. You could never pick up the Bible, and you are still, just by nature of being a part of America, you are still passing on beliefs and interpretations and opinions about the Bible to those around you. Because it's just everywhere. It's, it's all over. However hazy or incomplete your own ideas about it, inevitably, your ideas will come out. And that's the reason that we've decided to talk about the Bible for several weeks this fall, because we all have an impact. No matter how much of an expert on the Bible we feel, or, you know, like very, very far from an expert on the Bible, just by virtue of being a part of this culture, which takes the Bible as a granted thing, especially in the age of social media, the great leveler of all opinions, right? My cousin Schmo's post on Facebook looks the same as the New York Times post on Facebook, right? They just, it's the exact same. Uh, especially in that age, all of our opinions matter about the Bible, no matter how much we pick it up personally. Uh, and our theme for this discussion that we've uh, brought us to is uh, from this feminist theologian, Phyllis Tribble. She has this phrase, texts of terror. It's our spooky theme for October. Ooh, so spooky. <laughs> yep, yep. 
Halloween. Get it? Okay, great. Uh, glad we went there. Text of tear. Uh, no, but, but the, the way she uses this is she says, like, the gravity, unfortunately, is toward more terrorizing application of the Bible. That's, that's the center of gravity. If we just let it be, the Bible will be used to terrorize people. It will have texts of terror. But that is not the only way the Bible has been applied or used throughout history. And it's not the only way that it's used right now. Simultaneously, the Bible has been beautiful. The Bible has been a book of, about God's desire to liberate the oppressed. The Bible has been a book about God challenging oppressors to change their ways and experience forgiveness if they do. The Bible has been about God's solidarity with human suffering. You know, every human being, no matter what, is going to suffer. We're going to experience loss. Somebody close to us. We're going to fail. Something's going to just fall to shit. And God is the great solidarity offerer in the midst of that. He says, I'm with you. And the Bible is about that God. The Bible is about God's hope for resurrection after death, renewal after loss. The Bible has been incredibly life-giving to so many, including me. Both of these applications are around us. Texts of terror and the Bible is beautiful. They're both around us all the time. And every one of us, no matter how Christian we currently feel or are, we can impact which applications of the Bible live and which ones die the terrorizing ones or the life-giving ones, the ones that push people away from connection with God or the ones that push people toward connection with God, like a magnet to, to love, to the center of all things. This is one of the core values of our church. It's listed on our website, shifting the narrative about God and the Bible. We want to shift it away from terrorizing and toward life-giving. So last week, um, as Haley set the stage for um, us talking about the Bible, um, she was uh, focused on this word inerrancy, if you were with us, uh, the, on the work that many of us have to do who come from highly religious backgrounds. Um, we have to separate the Bible's purposes and the usefulness of it from really modern concerns like historical accuracy or scientific accuracy. The Bible's not concerned with those things, but uh, inerrancy, this idea, has made us think that it is. And so seeing those two things as separate and both important, seeing science and historical accuracy, obviously that's important. We want to be about that. And the Bible is something different. We want to be about what it can teach us beyond this idea of inerrancy. This week, our focus is going to be on problematic content and imagery in the Bible. Anybody ever read the Bible and been like, wow, that's problematic? <laughs> it's sort of like listening to a Michael Jackson song or, you know, seeing Kanye West tweet and be like, boy, I really liked Kanye back in 2004. <clears throat> This, so we're, we're focusing on problematic content and imagery, uh, on the work of drawing from an ancient sacred text for the purposes of today when those ancient contexts represented or the ancient images that they evoke often strike us as like extremely problematic. Ooh, what do I do with that? Uh, the Bible might feel problematic for cultural reasons or it might feel problematic for personal reasons, or it might feel problematic for both. Um, I'm gonna give several examples, and you can, you, you can kind of see what I mean. Cultural, personal, both. Um, 
And then um, what I want to do in the process is mention several of the texts of terror that we asked our community to share with us. We had a survey that was open all last month, and people could tell us, what are the, what are the texts from the Bible that you've seen um, terrorize other people or that have been used to terrorize you? And so many of them are going to come up in this, in this uh, talk today. So cultural reasons that the Bible might feel problematic. Uh, we're in an age where we take very seriously that every story has many sides. And so, for example, the overall theme of the Bible's exodus, uh, the exodus of, of freedom for the, the Israelites from the Egyptian oppressors, uh, we are so behind that story. It's a, it's a beautiful, powerful story. It's one of, those, one of those pieces that I mentioned of like God's, the Bible is about God's desire for liberation for the oppressed. What an incredible story. But in our culture, we also can't help but ask, what about the innocent Egyptian children who died from the last plague that Moses sent? If you're familiar with the Exodus story, right? Like, that's a, that's a realistic question, right? We might want to ask, like, what about the random soldiers in, in Egypt's army who were drowned in the Red Sea when they were just doing their job? They're not Pharaoh. What's up with that, right? Like, we, 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 we want to ask that question about the, the, the random character of, like, we can't just sweep away and just say God killed all those people and, and then feel good about it. What about the, what about the random soldier? It's just doing his job. And that, that's important, right? We ask that question. Regardless of the inerrancy questions, like, you know, did the Red Sea really part? That we're going to set those aside. The bigger question is, like, should we be okay with a God who seemingly is associated with killing innocent people, even if it's not a literal story? We want to ask that question. That's problematic, right? Some more here. Uh, cultural problematic things in, in the Bible. Physical violence attributed to or seemingly condoned by God in the Bible. That feels very problematic, right? Lots of it in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. Uh, there's even one random um, violence attributed to God moment in the New Testament post-Jesus, the Ananias and Sapphira story, if you're familiar. Anybody know the Ananias and Sapphira story? It's kind of wild. In the book of Acts, two people just drop dead, and supposedly God is responsible for that. Uh, not to mention the book of Revelation. Anybody ever read the book of Revelation? Lots of violence and blood there. And, you know, apparently it's glorified. Um, so we actually, we might devote a whole Sunday to the book of Revelation uh, in this series. We'll see. Another problematic thing, just in general, how about blood and sacrifice language? We'd kill the turtle dove. I don't know if there's turtle doves in the Old Testament, but kill the, I think I'm just saying, for some reason I'm thinking about Christmas songs, but yes, kill the Turtle, two turtle doves, and, uh, and, you know, sacrifice them on the altar this way. Blood sacrifice language is like, what do I even do with that, you know, today? I don't, I don't know. And also, it comes up a great deal in talking about Jesus and supposedly why Jesus is important. But we're not blood sacrifice people. You know, when, 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 it's, uh, when we're afraid, you know, of like the weather is going to change, we don't go sacrifice two turtle doves. We, you know, turn on the weather channel and figure out what's... Why, we don't even turn on the weather channel. What am I saying? Is, is, this, is this 1998? We open our phone and look at the app, Right. To round out the list, cultural reasons the Bible might feel problematic. How about punitive punishments uh, in like the treaties or covenants that make up a lot of the, the Hebrew Bible? When you do this thing, you know what the punishment is? Death. Yes, the punishment is death. And you know what? When you do that other thing, you know what the punishment is? It's death. Yeah, yeah, you guessed it. It's death. All right, so cultural reasons, right? There's a lot, yeah? Yeah, we, uh, Revelation was definitely one of the, um, one of the mentions in our uh, text of terror. Uh, in particular, it was uh, Revelation 20. Oh, wait, I should have written it down, which, uh, which citation it was. But uh, the idea of like the river of blood was the passage. They were like, yeah, this one's pretty problematic. I'm not sure what to do with that. Um, 
All right, uh, some pra uh, personal reasons that uh, the Bible might feel problematic. Uh, one survey result we got was that if you are gay or lesbian or bisexual, the pronouncement from the Hebrew prophets applied to Jesus' ministry in the Gospels to make the crooked straight, that feels kind of problematic to you, right? Yeah, the English language translation there feels like a threat to a non-straight person. What do we do with that? That's a personal reason that something in the Bible might feel problematic. Or, since racism became the dominant form of ethnocentrism and oppression in our world, beginning with the Atlantic slave trade about 500 years ago, here, something has happened to a lot of imagery in the Bible. It's become problematic. Dark light imagery, especially in the Gospel of John. What if your skin is darker? Why is the dark thing bad? Why is all of the light things good, right? This is, this is a way that culture has shifted, and now... Personally, something that you read in the scriptures might feel problematic to you. That's that. What do we do with that, right? Like, that's important. We can't just, we can't just sweep that under the rug. Here's some reasons that uh, the Bible might feel problematic for both personal and cultural reasons. For me, uh, the end of the book of Ezra, uh, where the Israelites send away all their foreign wives and children with the belief that the God has told them to do this, is incredibly troubling to me. Not just because that's horrible and the opposite of other biblical reminders to care for the orphan and the widow, but because Ezra is my son's name. I, it feels like problematic to me. It's like it, it wasn't really a biblical reason that we named him Ezra. We just kind of liked it. But I don't want him to come to me someday and be like, Mom, Dad, WTF with this story, right? A very common thing in the Bible is men as illustrative or symbolic of all humanity. Boy, that's not just in the Bible, is it, ladies? <laughs> yep. Culturally problematic, right? Obviously. But it's also additionally, personally problematic if you are a woman or a gender nonconforming person to always have men being the thing that supposedly stands for you. Cuts deeper. It's not just, it's not just an issue. It's personal, right? What about sexual violence in the Bible? Often as a swept-aside detail in a story rather than the centralized detail in a story, as in the story of Hagar in Genesis, which our friend Erica led us in considering during Lent last year. For some, these instances in the Bible of sexual violence not being addressed the way that we've learned it must be addressed are not just culturally problematic, they are personally problematic. They might even trigger trauma. Or finally, my favorite response we got from our survey of texts of terror was two words. It was Paul, LOL. <laughs> Which is just excellent. Paul, so the letters of Paul that make up, um, uh, make up uh, the, the letters that are attributed to Paul or were definitely written by Paul make up a th nearly a third of the New Testament of the Bible. And they are like the pinnacle of the both category, problematic for cultural and personal reasons. So many cultural reasons that Paul's context is, it's so much more patriarchal than us, so much more like enchanted, believing in you know, angels and demons in, in a way that, that many people are, are, do not see their world that way. Uh, and so it can feel like over-spiritualized, uh, it can feel really like dangerous to um, somebody who's not a man, uh, but it's also intentionally personal for us with Paul, because despite the cultural foreignness of a lot of Paul, his writings are actually the most similar to the way that people today write. And so pastors 
it's historically, especially in America, have this like love affair with Paul. We like, oh, like we preach on Paul way more than anything else because you read Paul and it's kind of like, oh, he's kind of writing like we write. Cool. Let's just go to Paul. It's easy. It's, it's easier to understand. It's not easier to understand, but we think it is because it looks a little bit more similar to what we write. And so we, a lot of us have been beaten over the head with Paul, beaten over the head with Paul, beaten over the head with Paul. And so when it feels problematic, it's not just like, oh yeah, because culture is different. It's also because like, I've, I have wounds from Paul. I've been beaten with Paul. What do I do with this? So what are some options? When, I, you know, I've just laid out like this full list of reasons the Bible might be problematic culturally or personally or both. What are options when we come across problematic content or imagery in the Bible? Options that can help us in this mission that we laid out of feeding life-giving application of the Bible and starving, terrorizing applications of the Bible. Let me offer a few uh, different options uh, that we may feel is helpful. It sort of is going to depend on you. So you're going to have to, I'm going to lay out a buffet table and you will have to choose what works for you here, everybody, okay? Uh, let me first offer um, some, uh, some, some options for us, a couple of options for us, when the Bible is problematic for cultural reasons, okay? One option when the Bible is problematic for cultural reasons. We can consider one of the images Haley brought to us last week. This was the bullseye or the dartboard. The center of the dartboard is the biblical text that pertain to Jesus, the image of the invisible God, as it is written. I love that phrase. Jesus is the image of it. We cannot see God, but we can know what God is like by looking at the person and the teachings of Jesus. That's the center of the dartboard. And as we get to the texts in the Bible further out from the center, they're more likely to feel problematic. And that's okay because they are weighted differently. They are subject to what's at the center. Center's worth like 150 points, y'all. Like, come on. I don't know. What is the center worth in a, bull, in a dartboard? board. 50? 100? What is it? Anybody? Parlor game, folks? Yeah, none of you. All right. I'm going to take your guys' money later. No, I'm just joking. Um, so, yeah, uh, the, the, the dartboard. Uh, one example of this, of a way to use that, to see that dartboard image in action when, we're, when we confront a, a problematic uh, piece of scripture, uh, is an example that we used this past summer after the shooting at the Highland Park Fourth uh, of July parade. Uh, what we talked about that following Sunday was Jesus doing this powerfully in Luke chapter 4 when he quotes from his Hebrew Bible, Isaiah 61, one of the Hebrew prophets. And it's this uh, phrase perhaps you're familiar with. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me to proclaim the day of the Lord's favor. And he says it in, in the synagogue and he, he unrolls the Isaiah scroll and he reads through it. But he intentionally leaves out the final line of this Isaiah passage that has violence and tribal vengeance in it. He reads this whole long thing about God freeing the captives, proclaiming the day of the Lord's favor, but he leaves out the line that, uh, that about, about violence. He leaves out the line about uh, Israel, you know, giving their enemies the comeuppance. Cuts that out. And then he provokes his audience because his audience is kind of nationalist. They're very uh, pro, oh, I shouldn't say pro-Israel. That means something very different today. His, his, uh, his, his audience is, uh, they're, they're waiting for the part where, uh, where Jesus is going to say, and by the way, it, uh, Israel is the best and you know, forget all those other nations. But he doesn't go there. Instead, Jesus starts painting a picture of a God who loves non-Israelites. And the people get so mad that they try to run him off a cliff. This is one of the passages we visited this summer. We talked about how Jesus in that moment lays out a method for how to receive the good of your tradition for all it is. So much beauty in that passage from Isaiah that he read. 
but to also critique the violence and the tribalism in his tradition, in his sacred text, and instead to expand the blessing so that he can pass on his tradition more loving, more inclusive. So that sort of, that sort of approach is Jesus keeping in mind the dartboard. As we work our way out, things can become more problematic, but they are weighted differently. This can be a good option for us with problematic passages and narratives. It's not defiling a tradition or source material to criticize it and expand it, expand its blessing. It's revering to do so. It's not unlike what Lin-Manuel Miranda does with Hamilton, right? He's telling the story of the American Revolution, which is incredibly problematic, but he tells it from an entirely different perspective to expand the blessing. That's really beautiful, right? We can do that same sort of thing. We don't throw the problematic stuff out. It's powerful when we preserve what's needed to be critiqued rather than pretend we had it right from the beginning of time. It's powerful when we do that and we, 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 we in, intentionally expand the blessing as Jesus does. So that's one option for us is to receive everything good about a tradition, critique the violence and the vengeance, the things that makes it less loving, less inclusive, less like Jesus, and then we expand the blessing all the more. Another option for us when we come across passages that are culturally problematic I'll punt to another of Haley's ideas that she brought to us to last week, which is to remember to look at the Bible as a book of wisdom and not a rule book or an ethics manual. So you know it's about to get nerdy here when we have a diagram. Oh, I have a diagram. Are you ready for this? All right, so if this is too nerdy for you, feel free to check out for the next five minutes. Okay. For those of you who want to get nerdy, this is an approach uh, to reading the Bible. It's an adaptation of an approach to reading the Bible called the redemptive movement hermeneutic, okay? Hermeneutic is just a big word for like how do you apply an ancient text to today. This is the redemptive movement way of applying an ancient text to today. Um, so uh, in, the, in, this, uh, in what you're looking at here, X, the position X, is the original audience and cultural context that any given biblical text was written for. And why is the Bible? Do you see the happy face, right? The, the people at the original, in the original audience look at the Bible and they're like, oh, how helpful. Thank you, Bible. Wow, your ethical brilliance. Thank you so much, says the original culture. Oh, they're smiling, right? That's what they say. Now, the confused face is when centuries removed, we come across an ethic in the Bible that may have been helpful to an ancient audience, but to us seems incredibly problematic because we've made so many strides ethically in that category. We're not always in advanced beyond the Bible's ethic. For example, income inequality. I think we are this way, past the X. We are, we are worse now than, than, than biblical times. But for something like, say, women's roles and possibilities in society, we have moved beyond what, uh, uh, we are more ethically advanced than where the Bible was. And in those cases, it, it is a terrorizing application of the Bible to make a frozen in time ethic like Y on our diagram and try to make it timeless and applicable to any time and any people and any culture to try to apply it today. That is not how one is meant to use the Bible as a book of wisdom. A life-giving and beautiful application of the Bible as a book of wisdom would be to try to discern the spirit of the text, and that's Z in our diagram. What is the, what's the redemptive trajectory that 
the Bible set its original culture on. You know, like where it was, it was kind of tracking somewhere. It was kind of, it was saying, you're here. I want you to try to get here. Can you track that way? And if we follow that trajectory down in time, we don't go back to what the Bible was saying. We might do something grander, even more so on that trajectory. It pushes us to, you know, like, imagine the possibilities further, not back toward Y, but toward Z on our diagram. So this option for handling problematic content in the Bible requires a lot of help and sometimes a lot of work. We need, like, trusted guides and resources to teach us about the original cultures of, and language and traditions and situations in the Bible uh, in order to understand, like, how did the Bible help those people? What, what, why, why was that a good thing? If we don't understand those things, then we can't actually do any of the work to apply it today. So we, we need, like, historians and scholars and people who study the Bible, theologians, to teach us about the context. We, the text itself won't give us what we need there. So this, this approach it works. It's super helpful to apply, uh, you know, in a beautiful way, the Bible to today. But it is a lot of work, and that's important. Haley mentioned last week, we want to find our cover artists when it comes to the Bible. We want to find those, those people who are remixing and, 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 and covering the various texts that we've seen in ways that speak to us, that make sense to us, that help us understand. And so uh, what we are constantly trying to do is give people some options of, uh, of cover artists to go to. So one thing we often recommend is the podcast, The Bible for Normal People. This is a great great resource to help get some of that like context, the history behind things if we want to apply the Bible in this beautiful way that we just looked at right now. Or another thing uh, that can be really helpful is a really quality study Bible with footnotes. Um, this, uh, this one that I have up here, the New Interpreter Study Bible, I'll ask if Allison can drop in the chat um, links to these so you can actually get these ones that we're referring to if, uh, if, if that's helpful to you. You can also just stay up to date on our messages here because this is one of the jobs of Haley and me as pastors here is to do some of this work on behalf of our community. So it's not up to you to have to go and do all the work on your own. That's why we do this in community. Uh, and that's one of our roles as teachers in this community. If you are curious to learn more about this approach, the, the diagram, because you're a super nerd like I am, let us, uh, that, that's mean, I'm a super nerd. You could just be like nerd adjacent. If you're nerd adjacent and you want to learn more about this approach, Approach, you can let us know in Discord, um, and later this week I'll share with you a private link of a video of a class I led for, for Brownline uh, three years ago. Uh, it was on our church's commitment to LGBTQ inclusion and how that relates to our church's commitment to the Bible as a sacred text, and I taught in depth on this approach. So if that's of interest to you, uh, we can send you the link to that later this week. So those are all options for us when we come across culturally problematic stuff in the Bible. But let me talk for a minute about when it's personal or when it's both cultural and personal. This is where we need to exercise some caution. I think sometimes your best option, if you come across something that is problematic to you personally in the Bible, sometimes your best option is going to be to leave those passages or those narratives on the shelf for a little while. Just don't worry about them. Let others address those problematic images and try to 
help people apply them in a beautiful way rather than a terrorizing way. If you are somebody who grew up or spent any time in evangelical churches, you are utterly scandalized right now by hearing a pastor say, leave the Bible on the shelf. (laughs) But you have to think about this as, as you would any potential trigger warning. God is not going to be upset with you for taking good care of your mental health. Okay? God is not going to be upset with you for taking good care of your mental health and avoiding something that might trigger you. God is like Jesus, full of grace and truth. God is not an exacting, calculating taskmaster that is upset if you leave the Bible on the shelf to protect your own mental health. God is like Jesus. At the same time, though, for many of us, somewhere along our paths of growing and maturing and healing, we may come to confronting our wounds and our triggers and discover that they don't have the power over us that they used to. We might feel ready to, or maybe feel like God is inviting us to engage in a way that we haven't. And when that is the case, I would recommend first, you know, slow down, pray, ask God for discernment. Is this this right for me? Is Is this the right time? Allow God to kind of signal to you, shine a flashlight in your mind, yeah, I think you can go forward. Or, you know what? It's okay. There are others. You're in community. You're, this, is, this doesn't come down to you. But if the flashlight is pointing toward, yeah, venture forward, then I would say that you can use some of the same options that we've talked about for cultural, um, culturally problematic passages. You are ready to do that if you feel like you can do so without triggering yourself. All right, a final challenge here. I mentioned that we've all, we all have the ability to shift the narrative about the Bible and about God, toward beautiful, away from terrorizing. Just by being in this culture, we all have the ability to do that. But for some of us, not for all of us, but for some of us, I wonder if we have a responsibility to do this. It's not just like something that we can pick up or take down. I wonder if this is truly, as for some of us, a responsibility that we, we really need to consider. Not because you're a bad person if you don't, or because God will smite you if you don't. (laughs) That's not the responsibility I'm talking about. The responsibility I'm talking about is two things. Socially speaking, it's not okay that people are terrorized by the Bible. It's not okay. And the Bible is not going anywhere. So if you believe in a God of love and you care about loving your neighbor and your enemy, this isn't optional. We have to receive the good of the Bible and pass on the whole of it better than it was passed to us. We have to starve the terrorizing applications of the Bible and feed the beautiful applications of the Bible because it's not going anywhere and it's not okay when people are terrorized for any reason by the Bible or otherwise. So that's one reason I think some of us may have like a real responsibility to take this up. Second is a personal reason. Personally speaking, I think there is a loss for some of us if we don't take up this responsibility. In the age of the internet, we talked about this in our previous series, instant consciousness of everything. (laughs) We are aware of every abuse, every corruption, of every institution or tradition out there. It is so tempting in this world to be like, this is why I'm attached to nothing. This is why you know, fill in the blank. Like, this is why, this is why I, 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 I don't attach myself to larger structures. This is why I don't want to vote. 
This is why I am, I am non-religious. This is why, you know, like fill in the blank, right? There's, we just don't want any part in larger attachments. I get it. I'm a parent. Sometimes I think, why on earth do I want to set my kid up for unlearning, right? But the thing is, it's not possible to be attached to nothing. The universe is not adorned with bleacher seats, I heard it once said. We cannot, like, look down on all those other people affected by culture, but not me, because I'm not attached to anything. <laughs> I'm sitting in the bleachers. We, that's not how life works. It is not possible to be attached to nothing. So it is tempting for a progressive like me to tell the story about myself, patting myself on the back about how, oh my gosh, people are so, like, don't even realize how cultural they are. I see all, of course, because I'm in the bleachers. So tempting for me to do that. But in fact, that's the very arrogance that we are often so upset with biblical inerrantists for, claiming that they can look at the Bible from bleacher seats, see it for what it really purely is, all the while, te all the while terrorizing others. We mustn't fall into the same trap and believe that we have bleacher seats to the universe. We cannot be attached to nothing. And we shouldn't want to. Because believing we can make meaning and purpose and justice and fuel all the goodness that we need for ourselves all on our own is crazy. It's too great a burden to bear. We'll fold in on ourselves and implode. There is power in being anchored to something larger than yourself, an ancient text, a tradition. There is great power in that. It's not strict adherence. We I hope you hear me clearly that like we can talk about all of the terrorizing versions of attaching yourself to something larger. It's not that. The power is the humility to embrace being situated somewhere rather than pretending we can be situated nowhere. We are here. Life is on the field, not in the bleachers. There are no bleacher seats. The only thing we can do is just put one foot in front of our others in the game of life. By no means do we leave a text or tradition like the Bible untouched or uncritiqued, as we're talking about here, but it, it, this does mean I, I have to live my life on the field. I cannot pretend that I'm unattached or can go about life just on my own, individually. As imperfect and in constant need of course correction as our larger structures are, we, we, we've got to attach somehow. And I think this idea, if we... If we live in America, where that Bible is everywhere, if we can commit to receiving the good in that tradition, teaching beautiful applications of that text, and starving the terrorizing applications of that text, amazing things can happen. And communities like ours can be like can 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 be like like ripples on water that can that can make a huge, huge difference. But we do have to, we have to do so from the field. We can't pretend that we can do so just like lobbing grenades from the bleachers. Look at those rotten players. We are the players. We are on the field. It takes us risking being attached to something or, or being seen as something that we're not. But we can take that. We can take that. We can be seen as something we're not and, and, and still be courageous and, and still try to fight for our values and, and, and have a hard conversation and, and help somebody see differently. We can do that. We're not alone in those things. We have community, and I believe that we have a God that cares deeply about this project, that is luring us along in this project if we can hear God do so. so that's my final challenge.
I don't necessarily want to speak that strongly for every one of us. But I think for some of us, if you're feeling like a little, a little hook as we're going there, I wonder if you have a real, like, embrace that responsibility. It's risky. It comes with challenge. It will demand courage of you. But you have a chance to really make a difference, I think. All right. I would love to pray for us in this place. Um, if you'd like to get yourself comfortable in your seat. Hmm. Why don't you take a deep breath with me? And you can close your eyes or open your eyes as I pray. And I'm going to just kind of keep us in this space where we're maybe jostled a little bit, provoked a little bit, but where there is space for us to meet the God of the universe that might speak to each of us here. So God, we invite you now. For those of us who, um, who are coming from that evangelical background where it's so scandalous to hear, put the Bible on the shelf, what? God, come to us in this place. You are so loving and wonderful, and you see all of our situations when it comes to our wounds, our hurts, our, our mental health. For those of us who do need to resist taking the Bible off the shelf for our own health, because you are drawing us toward that. Encourage us, reassure us right now, because our history makes that so hard to believe. If that's us, reassure us right now. Reassure us that life is long, and if we're putting the Bible on the shelf right now, it doesn't mean that we're a bad Christian forever because we're putting the Bible on the shelf, and that's the first step, and slippery slope, and eventually you'll never pick up the Bible again. That is just... Just shut that voice up, God. Life is long, and you are in constant connection with us. And should we stay in constant awareness of that constant connection you have with us, we will not be led astray. You are with us, and you care for us deeply, and you would never want to trigger our wounds. You are the God that shows us how to bear crosses. You don't set up crosses and nail people on them. You are the God that shows us how to bear the crosses of our lives. You would never harm us in that way. I pray for reassurance in this moment as we are quiet in our own minds that we would feel reassured by you, God, that we'd feel like warmth in our body, sort of like being hugged. And God, for those of us on sort of the, in the other camp that we've zoomed in on today, we're, we're ready to shift the narrative. We feel like maybe that responsibility applies to us. God, encourage us. Give us the kind of boldness that, that Jesus had to receive all the good from the prophet Isaiah but also critique the violence in it and to pass on his tradition more beautiful, more loving, more inclusive. Give us that same courage, God, 
Because the Bible is everywhere, and we want to be a part of influencing it toward beautiful applications. We want to be a part of contributing to healing and justice in our world. And the Bible is an incredible asset to that if we can help people see the beautiful applications of it. Teach us what our role in that is. is there, are you shining a flashlight in any of our minds right now as we're quiet, as we're trying to settle ourselves and not just run around like a chicken with our heads cut off? Is there any way that you're guiding us, that you're leading us, that you're luring us toward to to, to, to try something new, to take courage in a certain way, to, to say something that we've been afraid to say. Shine a flashlight in our minds and show us. And then God, knit together all of us here as a community. All of us in the theater here, all of us watching online, all of us who, who, are, who are sort of drawing from the same stream to try to make sense of our world and our lives those who feel more wounded and those who feel ready to shift the narrative so more don't get wounded. Knit us together as a community that cares for one another and sees one another in our individual experiences of the scriptures. And I do pray that our church would be a part of that contribution to more justice, more healing in our communities and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen.